You know, we're used to, you know, having bank dictate the terms and that's it. It's their money. What are you going to do about it? You know, now that they're kind of asking for more things um, and the loan gets more complicated, might have a loan agreement in addition to the mortgage. It's like another 30-page document. There's, you know, there's some room for negotiation and less the LTV, the negotiating power you're going to have. Also, the lower the interest rate you're going to get. Welcome everyone to the Cassandra Properties Podcast. We're joined today by a dear friend and uh, someone who's, who's worked with me as an attorney over the last, I don't know, it's been a long time, right Dan? Yeah, years. Years and 10, years. 15, 20, At least. I don't know. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun, <laughs> <That> baby. It does. <laughs> Dan Murata, he's a partner at Gabor and Murata, a company that was founded in 2006. They're a full service law firm with a specialty in real estate and estate planning. Uh, as I had mentioned earlier, me and Dan go back a ways. We've, uh, we've developed a, a friendship above anything else, but he has been one of my absolute trusted uh, allies in the legal profession and, and a guy who uh, really goes above and beyond in, in everything that he touches. So Dan, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Happy to be here. Always good to see you. It's good to see you too. Yeah. I miss our lunches. I know. Me too. Yeah. We used to go and, and do the Chinese food. Yeah. We'd make the circuit around, right? But right. we're getting back soon. Yeah, we'll get back. Yeah? See are you going out? Are you? Are you are yeah. You, yeah. yeah. You know, we'll, we'll go out to dinner and, you know, we're starting to get together with you know, friends and family again, uh, reconnecting with people. Amy good? She's great. You know, uh, she misses traveling. You know, she used to travel a lot for sure. the job. But, um, you know, uh, um, so she'll be getting back to that soon enough. Good. All right. Well, I want to jump in. There's a, there's a lot to cover here today. Um, Dan is going to uh, lay down some serious value, folks, as we get into some of the commercial deals and what he's seeing in the marketplace and where his skilled hand is, is, is guiding clients through uh, an ever-changing uh, capital market, you know, as, as the impacts of coronavirus continue to wreak a bit of havoc on the commercial market. But <clears throat> as we always seem to do, Dan, the audience likes to get a flavor of, of who you are and, and, and where you came from. So you're a, a, you speak fluent Italian. I do, si, parlo italiano. <laughs> See that? Yeah. So you grew up in an Italian family. I did. I you're studied Italian in college. Um, I have family there. I, I have two uncles and an aunt who are still alive. Uh, my father's hometown, Sicily. Um, and I have cousins in Milan and um, South. Uh, I'd love to get back there uh, soon also, uh, and hoping to do that. Maybe not this summer, but uh, yeah, soon enough. So you were born here, though, right? Um, I was. The year my parents came here, I, I, I was born here. And you, I assume you, you picked up Italian. You said you studied it, but clearly you picked it up at home. That was my first language. That's it was your I, first language. Right. And then Sesame Street uh, was what, how I learned English. Yeah. So growing up in um, an Italian household <laughs> has, he's laughing already, right? Yeah. It has certain things that um, we're all familiar with in the Italian family. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, at, at what point did law enter into your, your purview? I mean, is this something that interested you when you were young or? Um. I guess uh, it was probably when, when I was in college. I don't think I thought about it before then. Um, you know, I wanted a liberal arts education, and you know, I 
changed my major, I don't know, four or five times, um, from English to history to philosophy to government, and then economics, which probably made the most sense. And you, you know, any one of those is good for law school. But uh, yeah, I like reading, I like writing, I like arguing, I like dealing with people. So I like working. You know that. I certainly do. So you you have a a hobby, and um, I was shocked when I, I found out how good you actually are and, and <laughs> what you know some of the names are you've played with. Uh, so you, you play the guitar. I do. And uh, you played some gigs with some pretty famous people. Uh, we did. We played with uh, Ziggy Marley, uh, the Ramones. Um, uh, 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 Quite a few others. I, I, I'm kind of blanking right now, but uh, it's like a whole nother life. Yeah. Uh, but also, kind of interesting was when, uh, why I was in college, we actually had a very serious group that toured, yeah. and that was where we, you know, did these kinds of performances, and um, we were very serious young men at the time. <laughs> and you know, I would read our contracts, you know, and I we had a lot of them. We were, really? Oh you know, yeah, we we're pretty good. Uh, you know, touring the country. Uh, three, four times, uh, Canada, um, and, uh, you know, when I um, got to law school, I, I kind of, you know, was very excited about that. I started an entertainment law firm, entertainment litigation law firm, um, some years later after graduating law school, but uh, um, I decided uh, at some point that even for all of the people, all the clients I had, they were all buying real estate. Yeah. Um, and um, I really don't have, you know, kind of a time it really takes to be a full-time entertainment attorney. But I did it for a long time. Real estate seems to be the mothership, right? In, yeah. in everything. For us, obviously, it's, it's the mothership. We, we have a lot of different interests in different places and different companies. But it always seems to funnel back or originate from real estate. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember... Uh, my first law firm, I had a, a partner who was a, who is still a very dear friend of mine, and um, we had all sorts of really interesting uh, clients. Uh, but you know, every one of them you know, bought uh, a condominium apartment, bought a house in the Hamptons, yep. bought, um, you know, uh, a building. So I have always done that work, and today I, I enjoy it a lot. I have a lot of interesting projects going on, and it's been really good for the past year. You know, life for me in the pandemic is, like I said, I like to work. So I've had a lot of work uh, between the uh, commercial loans that I've been doing for, for people, for businesses and companies, uh, clients that have borrowed money uh, on their real estate, and uh, on condominium developments that I've been working on, these uh, small townhouses in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and Harlem, and some other places in Brooklyn where uh, I've become a huge success of folks are buying them. Uh, it's uh, amazing uh, the sales that we've had over the summer. So between those two things, it's uh, kept me busy, busy uh, for the last uh, 12 to 14 months have, have been um, really good for me. So it's interesting because a lot of folks that have come and sat in that chair have said the opposite that they haven't been, you know, as busy and, and, you know, they had the time to reflect and think and, and all that good stuff. But 
you've stayed busy throughout this. Um, what, why do you think that is? Is is it certain submarkets in Brooklyn that are just kicking butt at this point? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's it's just you know, chance and luck would have it that um, you know have one or two clients that. Uh, started condominium projects uh, that have come to fruition now, um, and uh, other clients who, uh, you know, suddenly are borrowing money and interest rates being so low, right, um, that it's kind of hard to pass up. Uh, so, as you know, I do mostly commercial real estate work, um, and these commercial loans are a lot of work. I mean, it's yeah, you know, it's not just a, you know, a, a one-hour, two-hour closing. Um, and it might take months you know, to close that loan, uh, but it's usually a lot of money involved, $5 million and above. Um. So one of the things that we wanted to take a bit of a deeper dive in was the commercial loans. And, you know, we've talked on this show quite a bit about, um, you know, as, as we emerged here, what we didn't know, and we still don't know, like where are the courts going to land on a lot of these issues um with commercial of course everything starts with with the leases and the revenue right you know if you can't paint a clear picture of what the cash flow is going to look like it's difficult for anybody and the you know the banks certainly uh, get picked on in this regard but it's tough for them also to see a clear value so they're taking extraordinary steps now Right, they're doing a lot of things that in the past they had not done, and I know that you've become quite an expert in this field. So I, I thought it would be great for the audience that uh, is looking to refinance their commercial real estate or they're looking to make an acquisition. If we could talk through some of the things that you're seeing now that perhaps in the past you didn't traditionally see, and things that you really should keep an eye out for, uh, because many of these clauses um, that they they have in these loan docs now are not customary. Uh, unless it was like, you know, straight CMBS money, a lot of these things you wouldn't find in traditional loan docs. Yeah, I find it that's exactly the case, which is, you know, the requirements are a little bit, you know, more reaching, maybe overreaching in, in some cases, and you have to push back. And, uh, you know, I'm, I have to say that we've been successful in pushing back on with a lot of lenders because uh, you know it's in their best interest to ask for everything that they can think of. Yep. You know, to, to uh, secure their collateral. Um, but you know, you have to look at it and ask if they're going too far. You know, what's the what's the reasonable thing you to do? And is there some kind of you know solution that you know maybe isn't as painful? Because you really don't want to have you know your rent roll tied up in some lender account or uh, you know be you know, under the threat of a default. You know. Uh, years on end. Um, so I think the first thing we should probably touch upon is the driving force behind all of these uh, loans is the interest rate. Yep. So the rates are low. Um, and so the first, sometimes uh, it's amazing to me a client will come and that's really all they care about is you know what yep. rate they're going to get. Uh, but on these, most of these commercial loans that we've had uh, several over the last year alone, um, you know, again, in a kind of over $2 million, over $5 million range, uh, you know, an interest rate won't be a guaranteed rate. It will 
be something like 200 basis points over the swap rate or the treasury rate or you know something to that effect um, so you have to look at what you know those rates are in effect and then the rate will get locked at the closing so you have to keep your eye on the ball um, you know sometimes I get the sense that, you know the closings getting delayed a few days to see which way to the <laughs> the rates tick up or down but you know if let's say you looked at the rate and it was swap rate was 1.44 and you're 200 over that so that would give you a rate of 3.44 that's great okay um i mean if you suddenly put the closing off for another month that that could go one way or the other um and on a big loan every point matters so a lot to to go back on there you said something that um I think is of particular value and that is you are pushing back and you actually are getting traction with the banks so that's point number one folks is uh, as dan had mentioned we 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 get so hyper focused on the rate and you know that's all we kind of see in this process to know that um, in a time when it's a challenge to secure commercial financing uh, that then what Dan is experiencing is that you actually can push back on some of these clauses. And we're going to get into a deep dive now on, on what these clauses are, what they mean, and uh, what to look out for. But something else you touched on that I just wanted to double back on quickly was, you know, the, the delays, the intermittent delays that you'll get uh, because the rates are not fixed most times until the closing and they are based off the treasury or a swap rate or something like that and what seems um maybe not to be such a big deal to the investor in the moment if that rate is is moving five basis points 10 basis points right that's a big deal for the bank that's a really big deal for the bank so whatever your rate is tied to you, you want to keep a close eye on that and make sure that uh, the bank is not pushing you off when it's coming time to close and that you're you're getting in there at at the right number now that are these fixed rate loans dan are they fixed for five years ten years uh, I, I can't imagine they're fixed for the term of the loan are they uh yeah they they, they will be uh with some caveats uh you know if you fall behind on you know debt service ratio or um if you don't meet some reserve requirement you know they might be a tick up um but yes yeah, so you can get them fixed so that i mean that that is a great advantage to you um some might be fixed for a certain time uh, so one negotiating point is you know what what's the loan to value ratio yep right i mean so okay everyone knows this but i mean when you're dealing with a five to ten million dollar loan this is a big deal is it 50 percent Seventy percent. I mean, if you're at fifty percent or less, you're going to have a lot of negotiating power, more than you think. Interesting, right? I mean, you know, for real estate attorneys, you know, we're used to you know having bank dictate the terms, and that's it. And um, it's their money. What are you going to do about it? Uh, but you know, now that they're kind of asking for more things, um, and the loan gets more complicated, uh, you might have a loan agreement. In addition to the mortgage, it's like another 30-page document. Uh, there's, you know, there's some room for negotiation. And the less the LTV, the more negotiating power you're going to have. Also, the lower the interest rate you're going to get. Along with whether if, if 
the term of the loan is shorter, right? So you're going to get a better interest rate, of course, on a 10-year than you will a 15-year loan. Um, so you know, all those things come into play when you're bargaining for the interest rate. You know, unfortunately for, for me as the attorney, by the time I get, you know, an LOI or, you know, some agreed you know, term sheet, uh, they've agreed on the rate. Um, but, and if I see that they're not even at 50% LTV, loan to value, I bring it up over and over and over again. We'll beat them over the head with it um, in, in trying to get what I want written into the mortgage or written out uh, if I think it's overreaching. Um, so based on, uh, well, first of all, for a point of clarity, Dan's not talking about repping the banks. Dan's repping the purchaser, the, the candidate that's refinancing, and if the LTV, loan to value, right, folks? So when you go to buy a property, um, the amount of money you put down gets measured against the total cost and the balance is what's financed by the bank. So if uh, it's a 20% down commercial deal, um, you're, you're probably, well, you're not probably, you're not going to have as much leverage as if you're a 50% down borrower, right? You have more strength, more leverage. And again, I've been doing this for 25 years and I can count on one hand the amount of times that the attorneys have been able to uh, really negotiate in those terms. So it's great to hear that that's happening. And I think what I'd like to do, Dan, let's go through some of these items that you're seeing occur in the loan that may be subject for negotiation, right? Why don't we run down a couple of them one at a time so that we can let folks know, hey, open your eyes beyond the interest rate, engage your counsel in uh, some of these clauses that you may have some leverage in. So, okay, one that, um, you know, you, have I, you and I have talked about before are uh, debt, debt service ratio requirements. So this is where, uh, you know, what is your net income divided by your monthly loan payment? Yep. Okay. So, you know, they want to see that you have a healthy amount of rent revenue coming in at all times during loan. Again, you know, so make sure their collateral is safe. Um, and uh, so a bank's going to want at least a 1.3 or 1.5, uh, you know, ratio. So uh, 1.5 would be if you had a monthly payment of $10,000 a month, you're collecting at least $15,000 in rent. Yep. Uh, so what happens if you don't? Uh, well, they're not going to approve the loan unless you do in the first instance. Yep. And then they'll have these provisions uh, that really need, you know, some careful reading and some careful scrutiny, which um, will be uh, a whole section on a definition of what that service ratio is. Uh, there'll be uh, uh, the penalty for falling below it, which will be either a cash sweep or what they call a lockbox. So what that means is typically these banks will require that you open an account with them, an operating account, where you deposit all the rents. Now you're doing continuing your business as you would normally, uh, collecting rents, depositing rents, making your mortgage payments, paying your taxes, insurance, etc. Uh, but you know, once you've uh, had let's, let's say an unexpected reduction in rent collections, uh, and the bank finds out about this, um, uh, and you fall below the required ratio, uh, they these trigger um, events will include falling below that ratio for a maybe you know, two quarters or uh, whatever the 
loan document says, and then your account will be inaccessible to you, meaning they will lock this account and you will not be able to you know, withdraw money from it or do anything with it other than pay the mortgage without getting prior approval, which is you know, a process in and of itself. So I just want to pause you here for a moment because <clears throat> I had this come up in a, a, a loan and I was shocked at what the bank's position was. So uh, thinking logically, you know, it, it was a debt service coverage ratio of I think 1.35. And the fear was there was a, 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 a tenant that was a, a, a junior anchor, right? They weren't the full anchor, but they were a junior anchor. So they occupied a good chunk of the GLA, right? The, the gross leasable area in the center. And being you know, involved in the business the way we are, we had heard some rumblings that perhaps there were, uh, there was trouble, you know, on the horizon and that the brand may not, um, may not be solvent in the future. They, they may go into uh, a bankruptcy and a repositioning. So when we were discussing with the bank, we said, well, hey, look, as, as long as we're staying current, right? And, and we, meaning the, the purchaser, as long as the purchaser is current and they're making their payments, surely you're not going to lockbox the, the account just because it falls below the debt service coverage ratio, right? If the, the landlord's willing to continue to pay and even subsidize uh, those monies, you're not going to lockbox the account, right? And the answer was, oh, no, we are definitively going to lockbox the account. So it doesn't matter if your note is still performing. It doesn't matter if you're still yeah. paying. Yeah, so we haven't been able to get around exactly that. We have written in some other, um, you know, options that have worked. So, we, you know, I tried uh, to, let's say, have a lockbox only if the loan is declared to be in default. Yep. Stop paying or, you know, otherwise materially default. But, you know, they want more than that. Uh, it's not going to let you off the hook that easy. Uh, but what we were able to write in on, on several loans of, uh, Bank of America, another bank, Key Bank, um, was um, that you there'll be a cure period. So the cure is pretty standard, actually. Um, there would be something like you know if you demonstrate for two consecutive quarters that you have now you know increased the rental revenues, um, or or the other cure, which you know we came up with was that you'd be allowed to make a, a capital infusion um, that would help. The cash flow. Okay, so they allowed that for you. Yeah. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, we and we had it on several loans. We've had it done in several loans, so it can be done. Wow. Um, and, you know, of course, that requires you to have the ability to make those cash sure. know, infusions. Uh, so, you know, let's say you're short $10,000 a month. You may need to infuse six months worth, sixty grand, you know, in order to avoid the lockbox trigger event. Right. Uh, but you really want to do that. So, I mean, once your you know, bank is now holding all of your rent money, you're really in a tough spot. Um, so, you know, there are, there are some ways, you know, to get around it. Also, uh, we were able to fight a couple of times on, you know, getting it reduced from 1.3 to 1.2 or, um, you know. Uh, and then we saw other provisions tied to different, that service ratio requirements, and we said, no, it's going to be one formula to remember, and that's it. Um, so, uh, you know, again, that, that depends on your 
you know, bargaining position. And again, well, how much are you borrowing? What, you know, what's the LTV? And you know, how favorable is the interest rate you're getting? Uh, and what's the terminal loan? Um, but you know, what is the formula? Is the first issue. Yep. Um, and you know, we've we've had long, hard conversations with clients. You know, let's look at your rent roll. You know, let's let's see. You know, how, how long have these folks been here? You know, are they going anywhere? Um, is there any you know tenant that looks problematic to you? Uh, amazing, amazing that all the loans that we did in the last twelve months, the tenants have been paying. Wow. So you know, go figure. Uh, so. But before we move to the next thing, I, I just want to ask one question related to the lockbox. One more question. So <clears throat> are you finding that they are requiring the replacement tenant? Are they putting any boundaries around the replacement tenant? Meaning that in, in one of our instances, we found not only were they going to lockbox the, the account and not allow for the cash infusion, if the replacement tenant was not of equal or greater credit that the the account would remain lockboxed uh, I haven't seen that one I would certainly push back on that um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure what that achieves for them um, so I would have to understand why well I pressed on it right and I think their position was look uh, we don't want you taking Joe Blow's widget factory and saying you signed the lease with Joe Blow's Widget Factory and you're replacing Gap. Yeah. Right? So they wanted, I, I understood the point, uh, you know, but that gets really sketchy, right? Equal or greater credit. At what time, what credit rating agency, how, well, you know, if, if the, the company in our argument was, well, if they're headed into a default and, and a, a bankruptcy, their credit obviously wasn't very good at that point anyway. So we went back and forth and that was a very tough solve for. It was a very difficult loan. I don't recall that issue coming up. Um, I do remember there being some discussion about it being a bona fide tenant, you know, not just some yep. you know, partner you put, in, you put in there that's yep. paying phony rent. Um, but I don't, I don't remember there being an issue about uh, having a certain you know, quality of credit uh, for the replacement tenant. I, I didn't see that language, but I'll keep my eyes open for that. I, I certainly be careful you know I, I want to make this other point maybe we could talk about it a little bit uh, you know I've also had some experiences where clients took on partners okay instead of borrowing money outright they had uh, institution or hedge fund or you know some other kind of banking type of you know company invest with them in their real estate um, and on a couple of occasions, quite disastrous because you know, it's financial um, institutions, hedge funds, and they're good at managing money. Yeah, they're not good at managing real estate. Huh? Yep. So you know, when you have to make emergency repair, you have to make an emergency repair. There isn't time to you know reduce a spreadsheet and go to a boardroom. Yeah, and have yeah. a committee meeting over it, and you know, submit a requisition form. You know, uh, the boiler has to be replaced. It has to be replaced, right? Um, so, you know, these types of partners don't understand that. It's just not the world they live in. So, you know, while it might seem like a good idea, um, it may have been pitched, you know, um, as a good idea, um, you know, something really to think about. As far as being partners with, you know, somebody that's not, 
you know, really a property manager. Um, and, you know, I, I bring that up because, you know, in, in the end, they're probably also leveraging money somewhere else to put into your business. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, you're going to be subjected to all sorts of other requirements uh, when you close on that investment. Uh, you'll also be closing on a loan, probably, uh, that has a lot of these types of requirements you know, built into it. Right. Um, so you want to make sure that if you have uh, a partner, um, even if you're the managing, even if you're the managing member, they're going to retain all sorts of approval rights in your operating agreement. Uh, so you want rational, you know, business partners who have real estate experience if they're going to have a say about real estate management. Yeah, it's a great point. You, you need to make sure that if you are bringing in an institutional investor, that you're aligned with your document with them and your document with the bank, right? Especially in the event of some of these defaults. So are these loans that you're doing, are they full recourse or partial recourse or? Yeah, so they're, they say they're non-recourse, but they're really, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, non-recourse with buy it boy carve outs they say right yeah yeah so um which tends to be a little bit more expansive than what you think but it basically that you um have been engaged in fraud um or misrepresentation um but then they'll also probably you know keep you on the hook for in, uh, environmental indemnification um and and the like you know, some of those items are not going to be so easy to negotiate. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd like to tell you about a couple others that we had some success on and that, you know, I thought was strange to begin with. Yeah. Um, you know, I see that, you know, there's always now, you know, uh, some kind of escrow reserve requirement, you know, and it's you know, all different varieties. Uh, uh, it's uh, repair reserves, um, the replacement reserves, uh, Maybe there are debt service reserves or, you know, some kind of rent reserve. I had that today, uh, six months rent reserve uh, to be deposited in that operating account with your, your bank. And it will stay there for a year they want. It. So they want you to, so let's start with rent reserve. Okay. So in this instance, they're asking you to deposit the equivalent of six months up front or yes. are they allowing you to build up the six months? So no, they want you to cut that check up front. Right. Wow. Is it interest bearing by any chance? No, it's not. No. Okay, so that's what. <laughs> of course that, not. Right. So on these reserve accounts, is you know, it's it's. Um, uh, it's very interesting because these banks, um, I think, love these reserve accounts because it's money that they get to hold on to interest free. Um, and once it's in there, it's really not so easy to get it out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have been successful in trying to, you know, write into the mortgage or loan agreement, uh, you know, more reasonable requirements of, you know, how to get money out of a repair reserve. Um, but they're still going to want you to show that either you've already performed the work and you're seeking a reimbursement. So this is on you know, repair reserve. Yeah, on repair reserve. So, so they, so they're. They're not allowing you to take the money to do the repair. They want you to do the repair first. 
in in many cases that'll be, that'll be right. Yeah, that'll that's what, that'll be the case. You will have to actually be getting reimbursed. So now you're again you're putting cash into it, uh, and then or using whatever you have in your operating account, um, and then you know trying to get it out of the reserve account. Um, I found on a couple of uh, loans we had um, that provisions regarding the reserves were even that you know they don't have to account to you for this money. They can commingle it with other funds from other loans involving mm. other properties. So, you know, for them, it's, you know, money that, you know, they're, they're tying up. Um, and for you, it's, it's money that you think is there to make the repairs. Uh, but really, again, it's, it, it's, it's for the bank's protections. So that's a super important point. You're saying that they're in some instances, they're taking these reserve accounts and they're writing into the docs that they can commingle it with other monies from other properties. And I'm sure they're using it against their ratios of what they're allowed to lend. In some instances, perhaps they're dropping it into, you know, overnight treasury, right? And picking up interest on it. What, what, they do whatever voodoo they do. Yeah. So, uh, but, the, you know, I'm a very cynical guy. Uh, I just see these kinds of provisions. I, I just scratch my head i you know i know you're not going to negotiate that out of it yeah because you know clearly that's something that you know they're going to require uh, but i'll tell you another uh, you know one one instance we had uh, earlier in the summer was um uh, the bank was getting ready to close and i had started asking right away okay so you keep talking about this property condition report when can i see this property condition report that we paid for, right? The commitment fee was like $35,000, okay? So that was to cover environmentals, uh, property inspections, their legal fees. And it's their inspectors, it's their inspections. Yeah, they choose. Right, you don't get to use your own, by the way. Right, but you know, and it won't give you a copy unless you really, really, you know, push them for it, right? And I did, right from the beginning. And then, you know, of course, now we're like, scheduling and closing, I still want this property condition report. Why? Because they're basing this repair reserve on a property condition report. So they want you to hold $150,000. Right. Why? Why the, Why am I holding $150,000? Oh, to cure the violations. Well, okay. So, you know, I get a copy of the report on in this particular instance. And, I, you know, I look at it and I say, no, no there, there aren't 10 violations on this property. It's incorrect. There were some HPD violations, and there was an elevator violation that was being addressed. But it's you know maybe a couple other items, but the violations that they said were there were not. <laughs> you know so <laughs> right. You know now that they spring that on me, you know, just you know in the last leg of you know this long journey that we've been on trying to close this loan, uh, and I don't think they were withholding the report or anything like that. I'm not that cynical. Um, but, you know, clearly without me seeing it, I couldn't point out to them it was wrong, right? Because, you know, in their mind, oh, great, we're going to have this repair reserve in case something happens. And so good for them, but, but bad for borrower. Right. Why is this money being set aside for no reason? How am I ever going to get it out? So those are the clauses to look for, though. You know, how to get it out, you know? Do I have to make a written request? I mean, am I, is it only for reimbursement? Are there scenarios where I could get the money without being, you know, without having outlay, without having to make the outlay? Um, you know, what is the, you know, I've tried successfully and sometimes not 
to have, put a time limit on. If it, you know you make a request with attaching the appropriate invoices, that, that they'll release the money within thirty days. What um, if they don't? Right? What if they don't perform? Do you have any recourses that you know? Yeah, not really. Um, I mean, you know, you're not gonna get into some litigation with your bank over a repair reserve. Um, I think your best bet is to clear up whatever you can clear up before you close a loan. Obviously. Okay, good, good advice. Right, and then when they hit you with this repair reserve, you know, try to whittle it down to the lowest amount of money possible. That's what we do. Uh, so you know, instead of holding one hundred fifty thousand dollars, maybe only only fifty thousand or seventy five thousand, you, know, you know, something that you know is more palatable, you know, in the long run. You know, so you know, on these kinds of loans where you're you're paying this type of origination fee or application fee, yeah, they sound like big numbers, but they're not. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you may be pulling some money out of the loan, right? Yep. You know, not in addition to getting a really low rate. Yep. You might, you know, getting some money, um, and um, you know, putting some money in a repair reserve is you know just par for the course. It's, you know what you just have to do. So. Uh, can you speak to what a cash sweep is? Yeah, so the cash sweep would be when you have uh, fallen below the debt service ratio and they have now uh, declared that all rents that you're collecting need to be deposited in that account and you cannot access the account. So that ties into the lockbox? That's the lockbox. That is the lockbox. Okay, so the cash sweep and the lockbox go hand in hand. And the... Replacement reserve goes hand in hand with the repair reserve. Well, replacement reserve is uh, you know for things that you anticipate replacing, uh, capital improvements. So they want roof, (laughs) elevator. That's not a repair. That's that's a different reserve. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you have to be on guard for all these things, right? Wow. You know, look at. uh, I mean, well, some of it, you know, some of it will be spelled out in the um, initial, so sometimes they don't even call it a commitment letter, right? It'll, it'll be you know, an LOI, or yeah. it'll be a, some term sheet, or uh, an application, uh, you know, set one seventeen million million loan, we closed it, called it an application. And every time I asked a question, they said, well, it was on the application form he signed. Uh, um, and, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with that once they've agreed to give you a certain interest rate, once they've you know agreed to you know all these other terms, you know, to go back and renegotiate something that's that you that your client signed and agreed to in writing, it's not going to happen. Right. So, um, with some exceptions, I, I mean, like, and I had one where they had two or three buildings in Queens, Brooklyn, same client, same bank. So, um, I don't think they understood exactly uh, the ramifications of um, the cash sweep and the lockbox. Um, and um, I think they were, they, the ratios were just too high. Uh, not that they would ever have the problem. It seemed like they had a very healthy rental. Um, but, you know, you have to live with it for the life of the loan. Yep. Plus, they're going to sell this loan, so you don't know who you'll be dealing with uh, down the road. Yep. So 
you want to make sure that you know you get the best possible terms uh, in in the black and white uh, that you can. Uh, so replacement reserves are just you know a different kind of uh, uh, for capital improvements. Okay, so something you touched on earlier, I wanted to go back for the for the audience and just expand on a little bit and and offer some clarity. Um, I, I had a client recently who very someone we know someone who's got a lot of experience um, with commercial real estate and they didn't even know that non-recourse loans existed. So I just wanted to spend a minute here, folks, when we say non-recourse, there's, there's different levels, right? There's full recourse, limited recourse, non-recourse and everything in between. So for a non-recourse loan, that means that if the the loan goes bad, they uh, won't come after you personally. Um, So, in theory, right, technically, as long as you're in compliance with your loan documents, if uh, things take a turn south, let's say you, you have a center that you bought, uh, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago for $10 million and your loan is down to $3 million bucks and it's worth $20 million now, right? And you want to go for a 70 75% LTV, you go get a refinance for $15 million. So you have all of your initial investment out, plus you've got $5 million bucks of the bank's money, you can actually do that in a non-recourse loan. Now, there are other things that you pay for for that benefit, but the thought process is if things go bad, you leave the keys on the counter, the bank picks it up, they take the asset back, and you are not on the hook personally. Then there's full recourse, which of course means that you're on the hook personally, and if things go south, uh, they can, uh, and in many instances will come after you personally, and then there's limited recourse in between. And, and another term Dan threw out was a bad boy carve out where, uh, you know, you'll get a non-recourse loan so long as there's no fraud or there's not, no, no in, uh, intentional bad boy activities. Um, otherwise, you can actually get up and kind of push away from the table at one point if the deal goes south on you. So, uh, you know, recourse, cash sweeps, repair reserves, replacement reserves, debt service reserves, that's why you get the right attorney, right? These are the reasons why not all attorneys are created equal and not only should they be educating you on these clauses, as Dan is pointing out, um, he's having success in actually battling back some of these things. So let's keep that you know, top of mind, folks, as, as we emerge from this thing and we're out there transacting in the commercial world. These are really important items. I know, Dan, you had referenced that um, entity structure is something yeah. that they're looking at now. Could you yeah. speak on that? Oh, that's pretty standard also. So they will uh, have these SPE requirements, uh, single purpose entity. So they want your uh, uh, corporation or limited liability company to agree that its only business will be managing this single real estate asset. It won't acquire other real estate assets. It won't engage in any other business. Um, It won't make loans to anyone. Um, It won't borrow money. Um, It won't uh, do anything except for collect rent, maintain and manage property and pay uh, so, uh, most often, uh, your operating agreement probably doesn't have such a thing. Well, why would it? Uh, you know, probably has more generic purpose clause or a 
even for real estate entities I create, you know, usually leaves some room uh, for maneuverability. Yep. Um, they are going to want, if you're a limited liability company, in a, an amendment of your operating agreement or if it's a corp, an amendment of your shareholder agreement. Um, and, you know, one thing that you know, I, I, I found was uh, that if you have a managing member and he has authority uh, to make those kinds of changes, then that's easy. Uh, but if you have multiple partners uh, in mm -hmm. an LLC, let's say, um, and you require unanimous consent to amend an operating agreement, now you're going to have to go to each one of them, you know, and it's going to be the 10% guy that gives you the hardest time about, <laughs> you know, agreeing to sign a resolution or an amendment of an operating agreement so that you could get the loan. Um, and I, we had a couple instances over the last couple of years where, you know, there's a holdout and, you know, now we, they're suddenly making new demands and they, you know, want to place restrictions on what the managing member can do and, um, the, you know, other provisions in the operating agreement that uh, maybe had existed for years, now they want to you know, tweak them, uh, et cetera. So, so you're, you're talking about when a potential minority investor in the deal, right? Let's say <clears throat> there are, you know, three partners, two of them have 45% and one has 10%, right? So you're going for, for a loan, this comes up. Now you need a sign off from the 10% partner who otherwise didn't have uh, much say in the deal. They're a passive investor and you can't get the loan without their signature. So now they're going back to the partnership and seeking f leverage. Yeah. In, in other items. And right. you've actually had this happen. Oh, yeah. And, if, uh, and most recently, it was very painful because it was the, the minority investor was a trust. And then now oh. I'm dealing with a trustee and the trustee's attorney. Oh, explain to me the interest rate. You know, explain to me this lockbox. Right. So as you can imagine, you know, here we are saying, well, the loan is going to close. Right. You know, in a week. 10 days, two weeks, whatever. I mean, how long is it going to take to explain a, a highly sophisticated, complicated, yep. you know, mortgage? It's not, you know, they're not your standard mortgages when you're, you know, talking about, you know, this, this type of uh, lending. Um, so it's not so easy to explain to someone. Uh, and then, you know, they're now, you know, going to really delay you. Um, and, you know, probably try to second guess the managing, you know, yep. partner of, you know, well, I got a bank that will give us a better rate, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. You know, I met this guy on the golf course. Right. And, you know, he's got a better deal for us, you know. So you have to then you have to you know, do that dance. And I mean, so, I, don't, I don't know how to get around it other than, you know, when you set up an entity or, you know. Um, so, we, you know, we had one where the managing member, you know, certainly had, you know, authority to enter into loans, make take mortgages out on, on property, uh, and exercise and discretion in doing so. But the operating agreement had required unanimous consent to amend it. So, you know, that's, you know, where you run into the issue. Because the bank's going to require this SPE. So, so, so where is the solve here? Is it, uh, so just so I'm clear on this, is it that the bank, so let's say we have an entity where there's three partners, 45, 45, 10, right? And, and one of the 45 is cl the clear managing member and they have full authority to secure loans. Will the bank generally accept that? Or if it's not clearly prescribed in the operating agreement, then you need all three partners. If it's not clearly prescribed in the operating agreement. So that's agreement. where you cure it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the bank may, a 
okay? The bank will, will probably ask for everyone to sign off on it anyway. So in some instances, we've said that's not going to happen. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the agreement clearly, you know, the operating agreement we have clearly says it's just a single asset. Um, it, you know, maybe because we've already financed, right? So mm -hmm. we already have it written in. Um, so, uh, you know, we, you can push back on, on in, in that instance and, and say, look, the loan's not going to close. If I have to go to every 5%, you know, uh, uh, guy in, in the LLC um, who maybe has not been too happy with management, maybe has been, who knows. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's a nightmare because inevitably they say, all right, show everything to my lawyer. Right. You know, now you're talking about another, you know, two, three, four, five, six weeks delay, which, you know, again, you know, maybe sitting there watching a LIBOR rate, a swap rate go up. Yeah, you know, while, sure. While you're sitting around waiting for someone new to, to the game, you know, to come up to speed. So uh, what can you do? Uh, you know, I guess um, you could um, uh, probably the best bet would be to make sure that your managing member, you know, has – um, the right to op amend the operating agreement. I mean, that's not sure. going to go over so well with a lot of attorneys uh, who might represent, you know, the other members, uh, non-managing members. But uh, maybe you could be more specific about that, um, you know, for limiting it to financing or uh, limiting it to special purpose uh, entities or creating, uh, you know, uh, entities that are special purpose entities uh, for exactly this Purpose, right. you know. Um, so um, that would be one, you know, way to deal with it um, ahead of time. But usually, it's you know, it's by the time it comes to me, it, it is what it, it is. It is what it is, and I have to unravel it. And, yeah, you know, fight my way through it, whatever which way I have to. So, you know, if you're thinking about financing, folks, if you're thinking about an acquisition or a refinance or whatever it may be, and you have the entity set up. Um, you know, it, it would be wise for you to, to take a look at your docs before you get to that point, just to avoid, if you do have minority partners, getting into a pinch point there where someone has leverage. And like Dan said, you're watching the rates climb and, you know, you're going through a very difficult document with a, a minority partner that's leveraging you for rights that they never in were intended to okay. have and, yeah. and they never should have had uh, yeah. just because they have a, a signature because you didn't set your entity up right. Okay. Uh, so here's another uh, one that uh, came up uh, recently. Um, so, you know, sometimes if you have a, a multi-unit uh, building, uh, you'll have a property manager that you've hired, right? You know, um, might be a company that you use on several of your real estate you know, properties. Um, you know, might be someone that you've had for years. Um, the bank is going to want to know who they are, review a copy of the property management agreement, um, and, uh, in some instances have the right to replace them. Mm -hmm. So that's been a big battle on a couple of these loans we had, um, last year, um, where I think we ended up that they would only be able to exercise that right if the loan was in default beyond any, beyond the expiration of any cure period, right? Um. Because you really don't want the bank telling you who, yeah. who your property well, I've is. had that on the real estate side, right? As the leasing agent, I've had instances where 
we've gone through and we've done our pitch and we've sold the partnership. Um, in some instances, we've represented the partnership on many different assets. And when it came to financing, we basically had to re-interview for our jobs yep. with the bank yep. to prove to them that we were capable of undertaking the assignment. And we were going to dedicate certain resources. And uh, it's gone so far as they wanted key persons uh, from my organization that were going to handle the assignment. So, you know. And this might be useful to you specifically. Um, yeah. We had a management agreement that covered more than one building. And that turned out to be a huge problem, especially when the client who owns multiple buildings decided to go to a different bank for one loan on one building uh, as yep. opposed to the you know, loan they were doing, working on with, with, the, with another bank yep. and another building. Um, so uh, my recommendation there would be if you have a property management agreement in writing, have it limited to right. the real estate property at issue, right? And then if you have, so if you're so if you're a good property manager, you're not just managing one building for a client. You're probably managing ten. Yep. Okay. So have ten management agreements. Got it. I'm not saying it's just the lawyers make money, but <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm just giving you the reality of you know what what it means. So, you know. Folks, these are things that I've sat at the closing table, I don't know how many times over the years, and many, many times, these are items that are just not addressed. So again, um, especially today where it's competitive out there with, with financing, these are things that you really have to keep an eye on. Uh, believe it or not, Dan, we're, we're already coming up on an hour, but before we, wow. we wrap up, um, I wanted to ask you just your general sense of what do you think is going to happen here as the courts reopen? You know, is is you know, I know it's a it's a crazy broad question, right? But do you, do you think that um, the courts are going to start, you know, ruling on each individual instance with who's paying rent, who's not, what are the rights, what back rent? How are these? Are, is there going to be a precedent set, and then everyone's going to kind of follow suit? H how do you sort this mess out now? Oh. I have to say, I, you know, first of all, I don't do any uh, rental collection work, yep. um, so I, you know, tried to stay away from that, um, and I really don't know the answer to your question. Yeah, you know, we have this moratorium that, you know, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, <laughs> what it means or says for nobody's like, sure. You know how to navigate it. Yeah, um, and um, uh, I, I don't know what they're going. To what I am hoping is that, well, regular court business, you know, will start to come together. I don't see it happening really before September. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're going to start doing trials, um, but everything's an experiment right now. You know, it's still not, you know, the courthouses aren't open doors to the public, you're not even lawyers. You know, so, you know, some courts, I mean, as I mentioned, we do you know, a lot of estate work. Um, and you know, sometimes we handle some, some big you know, real estate that passes, you know, in in the states, um, and I'm happy to say, you know, we had well, a virtual, you know, court, you know, hearing this morning uh, that went okay, it went went, went well, um, and I know that um, folks have been doing trials with Zoom, and, and of course you've seen the famous "I'm not a cat" um, <laughs> <laughs> video clip. Um, so you know, the technology is, you know, sometimes a little tricky. Let's say. Uh, but the folks are getting the hang of it. Of course, getting the hang of it. 
uh, it's you know kept me out of the courthouse and in the office making money, um, which you know is good. Um, getting work done you know, is good, uh, but you know certainly it'd be great to go back to face to face a little bit. Right. You really need that, uh, and you know, and somehow in video you. You know, when you're shouting, you can't, you can't hear you, the microphone's not working. Yeah. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, I'm hoping all, all that will, will come together by the end of the summer. They ordered everyone back to the courthouse May 24th. Oh, okay. May 24th. So, at least in New York State. So, um, you know, meaning the court staff, clerks, uh, you know, judges, uh, uh, court offices, and the like. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't think you're still going to see lawyers going into the courthouse or, or the general public except for you know, some limited jury trials that they're going to try. I, you know, I don't, I don't know how it's all going to shake out yet. You know, it's, it's, it's been a very challenging uh, time, and, uh, um, you know, some folks have risen to the occasion, and, you know, I, I think the technology's moved the notch. Sure. Um, so, well, those are good things. Yeah. Um, you know, Progress. I know some folks like you know. I feel like I've, I'm better at some things now. Um, more on top of you know some things that I've been forced you know to focus on. Yeah. Like you know managing people and managing calendars and events. So that's all. That's all good. So, how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way? Uh, probably the best way is the website um, www.gabormaratalaw.com. G-A-B-O-R-M-A-R-O-T-T-A-L-A-W.com. Um, or 212-349-1200 uh, was our phone number. Um, but uh, the website has my email address. Um, I always return emails. Um, we do uh, real estate purchases for people who are buying co uh, condominiums, um, people buying apartments. Uh, we did a ton of sales this summer from the condominium conversions I did in mm -hmm. the last couple of years. Uh, Brooklyn is hot. Yeah, uh, Folks are leaving Manhattan. Uh, high rises and you know, buying uh, these luxury condominiums in, in, in Brooklyn, um, and um, it's really uh, been astounding to, to us uh, the demand for it um, and folks paying one two million dollars for a walk up apartment with you know two closets, um, but in great neighborhoods you know beautiful streets and, and, and that kind of thing and and even other parts uh, you know of the city, uh, so. Uh, you know, those are those are those are good things. That's kept me very busy this summer, and I'm happy to help anyone with um, that kind of investment in mind. Great. Well, folks, when you're over on that website, check out Dan's blog. He's got a great blog, wide variety of topics. So, uh, as always, it's a pleasure to see you, my friend. Good seeing you too, pal. Yes, sir. Everyone out there, please stay safe.